It's good to see all of you this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We'll read to start in just a moment out of Romans chapter 6. And you can tell from that that we're going to begin something this morning a little bit unusual uh, that we'll take at least a couple of weeks with. We have been for a long time going through John's gospel together as a church. We just finished chapter 17 of that study. And when we come into chapter 18, everything starts to move very quickly from the arrest to the crucifixion and on to the resurrection. Uh, There's not much of a natural opportunity to pause in the midst of that like we have right now in finishing chapter 17 and coming into chapter 18. And I want us to use this opportunity then for something deliberate, and that is to bring you into a conversation and, uh, and a study that the elders have been engaged in for some time now. Uh, many of you were here a number of years ago. I was not here uh, when this took place, but I remember hearing these stories, very powerful. There was a season uh, many years ago when this church saw the impending graduation of their last high school senior and looked around and found no other children in the congregation. It's very hard to imagine that looking at the room right now. Uh, But prayers began then. Lord, if it would please you, would you bring children to this body? And he has answered that prayer in abundance. Uh, And the first babies that came as a part of that answered prayer are now teenagers. It's hard to believe. Uh, And what's happened then is that as those children have matured and some have come by the grace of God to understand their sinfulness and their need of a Savior uh, and to understand Jesus' willingness to save all who come to him in true faith, what's happened is that by God's grace, salvation has come to children in our body. And parents hear the professions of faith and begin to see fruit of the Spirit in the lives of their children. Um, And not just fruit, but also to see their maturity as they age, reach a place where they can actually understand and articulate the salvation work that God has wrought in them. And then they want to take what the Bible describes as the first public step of walking in faith after Christ, which is the public proclamation of baptism. These are things that every church longs for and prays for, for every one of the children in their midst. And so one thing that's been on our minds for some time is, well, a number of things. Are we being deliberate to teach a biblical perspective on these things? Are we being intentional to help our church body to be very clear, adults and children alike, as to what what these things are about, what they are meant to signify. Are we presenting them from Scripture and explaining them in those ways so that we know how to walk through those steps of obedience? That's one thing we've been thinking about for a while and talking about together. Um, There's another one, too, that's related to that. It's kind of a what next uh, or what are the implications question. Once a child in a church family is baptized, what is the nature of that child's relationship to the rest of us? in the corporate body. An easy way to say it is, how does, how does this affect church membership? Does it? Is there any connection at all between these concepts of baptism, uh, and in particular regarding children, 
baptism and some sort of formal membership in the body of Christ? How do these things relate? These are the things that we've been thinking about. And this week and next week, at least in these two, we'll see how it, sometimes it tends to, to expand beyond what I am expecting at the start, but we'll see. Um, I want us to walk through those areas of biblical thought together, both on the topic of baptism and the topic of church membership and how these interrelate. And I hope to do that in a way that would be clarifying for us all overall, uh, but specifically that looks at how this, this relationship might exist. So it's for that reason that we're going to start today by reading from Romans 6. I'm going to read the first 14 verses from Romans 6 out of the English Standard Version. As I read, let me ask you to notice something and just tuck it away for now. Okay, We'll be coming back to this text later this morning as well. Notice how much baptism is emphasized at the start of what we're reading. And then notice the way that it leads in Paul's mind to a particular accountability and obligation regarding the way that we present ourselves to God for service. Now, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Romans 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, as your members, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. With everything in mind that I just said we're going to be thinking about together, we start this morning, and really we're consumed this morning with one question only. It's the question, what is baptism? Next week, we'll take what we see here today and use it to think about several implications of what God has done and what he intends in commanding his disciples to be baptized. But that's next week. We start here with this particular question. We want to understand what God had in mind and what he has, in fact, put in place by commanding us to be baptized. Uh, and I'll start with a direct answer to the question, what is baptism? 
maybe kind of a simple one, but I think the right one. And then we'll walk through that definition carefully this morning as we go. So here's our starting answer to this question, what is baptism? Baptism is the God-given sign of the new covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And I would have us consider this in two parts this morning. First, by thinking of the concept of a sign in general, because some of this language is language we're just not that used to operating with. We don't talk like this all that often in a lot of contexts in our lives. We do some, we'll see. But so let's start by just thinking about the concept of a sign and specifically the notion of, this, of a sign of a covenant. That's the first thing we'll think about. How do we understand this, a sign of a covenant? And then hearing what the Bible says about the sign in particular of the new covenant. So this is where we'll go. So the first thing we're thinking about is the reality that, the, that baptism is the sign of a covenant. Covenants are typically accompanied by signs. Covenants involve promises. Covenants are, are invisible things. And typically when covenants are entered into, signs are supplied that visually represent the realities in those covenants. Uh, think of, I think the, the example nearest to us in our experience and in our time is the, this thing, the wedding ring that if you're married, you have on your finger. Candace hates it when I take this off and play with it. I really like to do that. And now I have an excuse to, to do that this morning. So I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed that. Uh, this, this is a sign of a covenant that I entered into. A wedding ring does not make you married, does it? If you take it off, you don't cease to be married until you put it back on again. The, the covenant isn't in the ring. The, the ring is a sign of the covenant. The marriage covenant consisted in divinely sanctioned vows. But those vows are represented outwardly. They, they are signified. This covenant relationship that I've entered into is signified in this ring. And if you've grown up in the church, you, you probably know fairly well a number of other covenant signs that we find described for us in Scripture. Just think of other covenants that God has enacted uh, in the history of his dealings with man. What sign did he give when he entered into the Noahic covenant, for example? We read about it in Genesis chapter 9. It's the sign of the rainbow, right? Genesis 9, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, my instrument of war here pertaining to water, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So notice there, there's a covenant, and that covenant then is signified by something that's visual, but not just anything that's visual. The form of the sign chosen serves a particular purpose, doesn't it? It conveys something particular about that covenant visually. Namely, this promise of ceasing 
from this hostility. You will not, I am not going to engage in this act of war, this destructive act again. And so the, the bow is set down, notoriously set, uh, as is often noticed, in a way that is aiming back up at himself. Uh, there's symbol there that is divinely intended with this covenant sign. When God entered into covenant with Abraham, he gave a sign of that covenant. It was the sign of circumcision. Genesis 17, God speaks to Abraham about the covenant that he has made with him. And in verse 11, he says, you shall be circumcised. He's speaking to Abraham and his family. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So you have the sign of the Abrahamic covenant there, visually representing the being being set apart, the being purified, the removal of impurity. This is all signified there with that sign. You have the covenant with the nation of Israel, which we call the Mosaic covenant. What's the sign of that covenant? Exodus 31 tells us it was the Sabbath ordinance, the seventh day Sabbath command. Exodus 31, starting in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign between me and the people of Israel. So you see in both of those signs, both for the Abrahamic and for the Mosaic, you see significance there. We saw that with Abraham and God's work of separating him out, uh, the sign of the Sabbath of the Mosaic covenant visualizes both the command to represent God by demonstrating his seventh-day rest on earth, this is a people representing God, and in the command to rest in the provision that God is going to provide. That's always interesting to me as you think about these Old Testament covenants and signs, how all of them are pointing, aren't they? They're pointing to realities that will be complete, will be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. And yet the sign signifies these particular realities with these covenants. And in the same way then, that those covenantal signs displayed particular truths that were represented by the covenants, in the same way, baptism visually signifies the realities of the covenant that it points to. And this leads us to consider the second half of the definition that I gave for baptism. We've seen that that uh, we've talked about the concept of a sign of a covenant, but we need to think about the particulars this morning of baptism as the sign of the new covenant. Hopefully it's clear to you, if we're going to be able to appreciate what realities are supposed to be visualized with this sign, we have to understand the particulars of that covenant, don't we? What is it that's being vowed, being promised in that covenant? We can't know what we should expect to be represented in its sign if we don't know the substance of the covenant itself. So let's take a few minutes to think about that. Let's, 
Let's think about the, old, the, the new covenant that the scriptures speak of. And, and we'll do two things here. We'll do an Old Testament examination and a New Testament examination. Okay? So I'll have you turn to a few places here this morning. Uh, first, in the Old Testament, uh, and there are two places that most directly give the promises of the new covenant from the Old Testament. The first one is in Jeremiah. So find Jeremiah. This is a helpful uh, reference, Jeremiah 31, 31. It's always handy when it comes like that. I can remember that. Jeremiah 31, 31. He's speaking to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. Things are not great, and he is promising something new is coming. My salvation is coming. And listen to the way that he describes it here. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now notice the two important aspects of this covenant that are being promised here. First, those in this covenant will be given a true knowledge of the Lord. You hear that? His law is put within them. The very result of being brought into this covenant is this. They will look within that covenant community. They will look to the left and to the right. And all of those fellow covenant members, what does verse 34 here say that they will find within this new covenant community? They shall all know me. This is the promise. Now, this is a timely occasion for us to see this because Jesus' high priestly prayer actually helps us to know how to articulate this when it comes to having true knowledge of God. What did Jesus just say in John 17 regarding true knowledge of God? He said early in that chapter, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To be given true knowledge of God is to be given eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you. And this is what's being promised within the new covenant. These people are being brought from death into life, given life because of the new covenant. It's the first aspect that we see here being promised, the promise of life out of death. The second is described at the very end of what we read, at verse 34. See the promise that's made there about this covenant. He says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What's promised there? They will be washed clean of their sin before God. So we have two things here. We have life out of death being held out in this new covenant. And we have the washing of purification from sin. 
Now hold on to those two, life out of death and washing of purification. And turn ahead to the second of our two places here in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. At verse 22 in that chapter, God through his prophet is in the midst of describing another promise here, a promise of restoration, a promise of healing. He's promising here what he at last grants in the new covenant. Let me read starting at verse 22 and listen for what we just saw in Jeremiah. Listen for statements of washing. Listen for statements of God's work of regeneration, life from death. Listen for those things. Starting at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. This is such a text, by the way, that demonstrates to us what is God's purpose in all things. He is working to the end of bringing glory to himself in his creation. Verse 23, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Some of that sound a little bit like deja vu after just reading Jeremiah 31. You have the same promises and even the same wording to represent it. And what's more here, God then follows uh, here in Ezekiel with a visual representation of the promises he's just made. How does he visualize for them to understand the promises he's holding out in this new covenant? Well, he gives a vision of a valley of dry, dead bones that hear the word of God and come to life. Life out of death and the washing of purification. This is what we have promised in the Old Testament as the scriptures are pointing us ahead to a new covenant that is coming and the covenant that has come with the shed blood of Christ. Now, maybe you're already starting to see why God's chosen sign for these promises would be so very fitting. A promise of cleansing and purification, a promise of movement from death to life, how might I visualize that? I know. How about entering into cleansing water and then coming back out again? Just like the world went through water and came out cleansed in Noah's time, just like the people of Israel went into the Red Sea, didn't perish, but came back out again, in essence visualizing a move from death 
back into life. That could be a great visualization of promises like these. Anyway, let's see what God is going to do in describing in the New Testament what his purposes are for the covenant sign he's given regarding this covenant. So into the New Testament we go. We've heard the details of the promise of the new covenant. We've imagined that baptismal waters could be a really effective visual to signify them. But what does the New Testament, which represents, by the way, the fulfilling of the new covenant, right? What does the New Testament say? Well, let's look at three places and hear these descriptions. The first is what we read at the beginning, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. We've already read these verses, so we're not going to read out loud all of them again. But look at them. Let me, note, let me just point out some places here. Notice again what you see. Notice what we heard. We see the emphasis as quickly as verse 3, placed upon baptism, which, by the way, is a part of Christ's great commission command that he gave us, right? To go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see the emphasis here as early as verse 3 on baptism. And what does Paul say here in this text that baptism is meant to represent? Verse 2, death to sin. Verse 4, burial with Christ into death. To subsequently be raised with Christ, to walk in newness of life. You see verse 6, the removal of enslavement to sin. There's verse 9, or verses 9 to 11. A raising to life such that we will never die again and are in fact dead to sin. These are the realities of our Lord Jesus that we have been led to follow in. This is what he has done for us because of what he has done. My friends, what is all of that? It is the visualization, the representation of the very benefits that Jeremiah and Ezekiel predicted would come in the new covenant. Turn ahead now to Colossians chapter 2. I will read this. Colossians 2, starting at verse 12. Paul writes this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we hear him speak of burial with Christ in baptism, verse 12, movement from death to life, verse 13, forgiveness of all of our sins, verse 13. We're seeing a pattern. Now, but what Colossians is very helpful with in what we just read is the way that he words this helps us to remember that in talking about baptism, he is really using shorthand for our conversion and regeneration, or maybe better put, it's, our, it's the realities of our conversion and our regeneration that are being pictured in baptism. He is not saying that baptism was the moment of our regeneration. He's saying that it represents it. Any more than I stop being married when I take off the wedding ring, that would be the wrong connection for us to make, right? And that's clearly given what he says here in verses 12 to 14. 
He's helping us to, to keep things in the right places. What accounts for the forgiveness and the life that is ours in Christ Jesus by faith and is represented in baptism? What accounts for it? It's not the baptism. Verse 14 says, it's the cross. How, how were we washed clean? How, was, how, how were the sins, the record of debt that was ours, how was it removed from us? It was removed from us by nailing it to the cross, he says. And verse 12 says that it came to us through faith. You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. There are a number of texts that we're leaving aside for the sake of time, unfortunately, but I hope that so far what we've done in this Old Testament, New Testament look at the promises that would be ours in Christ and then the fulfillment and how those are expressed and visualized. Uh, I hope this is helpful to us so that we can see not only why God has given the baptismal waters as the sign of the new covenant, but in fact, why the baptismal waters are the perfect sign to demonstrate these particular realities that come to us in this covenant. Now, knowing the way that baptism functions as a sign and knowing what that sign is proclaiming leads us to a number of important conclusions and applications. And that's what we'll look to in particular together next week. We'll build off of what we have seen. Uh, what I hope we'll find is that because baptism serves to identify the new covenant community on earth, being baptized then immediately entails a series of obligations to God and to his people. You can be thinking about that this next week uh, in preparation for next Sunday. You might read Matthew 16, 19 and just consider what does it mean when the Bible says that the church is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Often we'll speak in these terms, and rightly and well, that the state has been given the sword and the church has been given the keys. But what does that mean? Some of that is what we'll be looking at together next week. But this morning, I hope that we as believers are led to some reflection as we're being reminded about the realities represented in baptism. I hope we're being led to think back, each of us, to our own baptism. Uh, I hope it's instilled in us again what was being proclaimed to the world on that day. That as a child of God, I have been bought, paid for. I've been washed. I've been brought to life in Christ. Yesterday in the back room, the men's group spoke together about a pattern that we see throughout Scripture, that we are not told to live for God in order to become something. It's the opposite. We're told that God has made us something new in Christ, and as a result, we are then to walk forward and to live in a particular way. So Paul says, for example, in Philippians 3, speaking about the, the end of God's purposes for us, the attaining of the resurrection of the dead, he says, not that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Getting that order right is absolutely 
essential for us in the Christian life. And my friends, this is the declaration of your baptism. The person who is submitting themselves to be baptized before the church is standing to enter the waters. This is one upon whom, this is the statement, this is one upon whom God has poured out his mercy and love. That person is saying, I am one who was dead and now is alive. I am one who was lost in sin and has had that stain washed clean by the shed blood of my Savior. It is no testament to how far I have come. It's a testament to what Christ has begun to do in me. In one more person on this earth, as he expands his kingdom, one soul at a time. And as we've said, that display of those particular realities is intentional as an ordinance that Christ gave to his church. It's meant to visualize particular realities. Augustine, a long time ago, called the ordinances or the sacraments, he called them visible words. I find that a helpful description. Visible words. And after I pray in just a moment, we will turn to the Lord's table before me, which is the other of those corporate visible representations of gospel realities. But before I do that, let's pray together. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we praise you. We thank you this morning for your word, the word by which you feed our souls, by which you grow us up into maturity and Christ-likeness. We confess together this morning, Father, our need for that growth. God, I ask for you to use what we have seen this morning to sharpen our understanding as to how you have called your people, the church, to live and to display you in the world. Grant us humble hearts. And more and more, Father, lead us away from the call of the world to live our lives for ourselves. We are not here for ourselves. We are here to bear your image, to be at your disposal. Even as your son taught us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. God, help us to do that this week in the places and callings that you have put us with the families that you've given us. Help us to find joy and to feel your pleasure by living for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.